0: Welcome to Inside West Point, Ideas That Impact. I'm Brigadier General Shane Reeves, the Dean of the United States Military Academy at West Point. Through a series of discussions, we will show you a different side of West Point, where we will make even our most complex initiatives accessible to broad audiences and give you an inside view to our cross-disciplinary work, which is being applied throughout the world. So I'm joined here today with Dr. Elizabeth Samet. Since 2007, she has been a full professor of English in the Department of English and Philosophy here at the United States Military Academy. Dr. Samet holds a PhD in English language and literature from Yale. Her books include No Man's Land, Preparing for War and Peace in Post-911 America, Willing Obedience, Citizens, Soldiers, and the Progress of Consent in America, 1776-1898, and Soldier's Heart, Reading Literature Through Peace and War at West Point which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Current Interest and was named one of the New York Times' 100 Notable Books of 2007. She is the recipient of a National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar Grant and the Hyatt Prize in the Humanities. She was also awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship to support the research and writing of her most recent book, Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia, and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness, which was published in November 2022. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Samet.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, General Reeves.
0: Well, it's our pleasure, and I just want to thank you for taking the time for being with me this this afternoon. really excited to to have this conversation, especially about your most recent book. But there's a number of things I wanted to talk to you about and ask you. So let me just start with a generic question. Tell me a little bit about your educational background as an undergraduate and also as a graduate student.
1: Well, I was an undergraduate at Harvard and majored in English there. Originally thought I was going to be a doctor, but I still wanted to major in English. And then you I are realized, a doctor. Well, not that kind of doctor. <laughs> and uh, a physician. And then discovered that that was not really where my, my interest was. So majored in English and then decided after a year of graduate school in Scotland at the University of St. Andrews studying hmm. Shakespeare that I wanted to pursue this for a career. So then I went to Yale to get my PhD. And from Yale, I came to West Point.
0: So you came directly from Yale to West Point? I did. What brought you to West Point?
1: So there's a long answer and a short answer. The short answer is Ulysses S. Grant and my father. (laughs) And so I will amplify that a bit. I actually found Grant's memoirs, which I, as you know, I subsequently edited when I was a graduate student and I was supposed to be writing my dissertation, but instead I was reading these memoirs and they were not at all what I expected Mm. of a 19th century general writing about war. And the writing felt to me very modern and I didn't know at the time how anomalous they were. But in fact, they really do stand out in memoirs of the time, very unusual. And the other thing that intrigued me was that he wrote a little bit about West Point. And of course, he, he loved it and hated it both at the same time. Sure. And uh, he spent, he said that he spent all, most of his time reading novels, but not those of a trashy sort. (laughs) So I like to share that with my students, with the cadets when we're reading novels, but not of a trashy sort. (laughs) And so when the job announcement for a position in the English department at West Point came up, I sort of, I took a second look at it, which I probably would not have done. But the other factor there was my father, who Hmm. served in the Army Air Corps in World War II. And I grew up listening to his stories of the war. And I think I probably had a slightly different idea of the Army than many of my peers because he was older than they were. And many of my peers' parents, I think, had a Vietnam-era attitude toward the military. And I think mine was a little different from that because of him. And so I I think uh, otherwise I might not have applied. But I, I was intrigued, and the rest is history.
0: Where did you grow up? In Boston. Okay. Have you, by chance, seen the Soup's House? And there's a thing called Constitution Corner, and it's really the only, I would say memorial, I guess, but it's the only monument, let's say that, to the Constitution of the United States that is not the Constitution itself. And it has all the various oaths of office. But when you said your your dad was in the Army Air Corps, that has always stood out to me at West Point. Because it's sponsored by the class of January 1943. And they're one of the two classes that were split during World War II. And most of them went into the Army Air Corps. And I think their graduating class was roughly 490 to 500 people. But the number of them that died, not in combat, but in training exercises, is really shocking. I mean, it's, it's, it's a significant number of their class. And so the Army Air Corps was not for the faint of heart when it, when it first launched. So when was your dad in the Army Air Corps?
1: So he joined when he turned 18 and 42, mm. and he trained as an air traffic controller wow. and also trained in laying radio range beacons. He served in a series of stateside bases, saw some of those training yeah. accidents yeah. from the tower, and then went to India where he served for most of the war. Interesting. And a series of bases there. Of course, they were flying missions over the hump to China, and then they would fly wounded back. And so that's where he spent much of his war.
0: So I'm assuming you went to Harvard because that was the local school in Boston. I'm from Rock Springs, Wyoming, which the local school is Western Wyoming Community College. So it's very, pretty much the same thing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, what, so you've been teaching at West Point for 26 years, which means you're one of actually the earliest of our permanent civilian faculty. What have you seen change in those 26 years here at the Academy?
1: I've seen a lot change. When I first came here, we were at peace. As soon as I figured out those peacetime rhythms, we went to war. And, of course, I've taught most of my time here has been during teaching during wartime. And, of course, that was something I never could have predicted. And it initially gave, I think, a sense of urgency and a new kind of meaning to what we were doing in the classroom. I know that I thought about my students in a different way as they progressed. And as I taught here longer, those students were deployed. My colleagues were deployed. They didn't always come home. And that suggested to me that the stakes of what we're doing here were rather different than I thought they were at the outset. I was naive, I think, like everyone else. I knew I was training future officers, but I didn't necessarily have a clear sense of what their careers would look like, nor did they.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point about realizing the realities of of warfare. You're right, it really changes the tone of what you're doing, and and I think it brings home the importance of what we do here at the Academy. Over your 26 years, how have you evolved as a faculty member at the Academy?
1: Well, I'd like to tell a story that happened soon after I got here. There was a, a fellow, I don't even know if he still works here, I haven't seen him in a long time, but he he used to mow the Plane and then I, as I would walk by to the gym, he would see me and we'd wave and we'd chat and exchange pleasantries. And then one day he said, What's your function? And I said, Wait, what? (laughs) He said, What's your function around here? What do you do? And I said, Well, I teach English. And that was very early on and that's really how I imagine it. And that's still what I do. But I think that I have a deeper, richer sense of connection with my students and former students than I ever imagined I would.
0: If you had to. Articulate the difference between education and training, and what we do on the academic side—being education. How would you distinguish between those two?
1: Well, I—I I think this actually came up in my in my class this morning. I was re- we're reading Macbeth with the plebes. I am in my class, and one of the plebes was talking. I was talking about the Macbeths and about their relationship, and I guess I sort of scandalized a few of them by saying it's actually a really good marriage. <laughs> And by that, I mean, they talk to each other constantly. You know, there are all these clues that we don't, all, we don't see it all the time, but they're talking to each other all the time. Now they're embarked on a really horrible course, but, but they have this really intense and, and fascinating relationship, and it's very close. And the conversation evolved from there, and one of them said, you know, well, I, I can't imagine doing any, I don't know how we're supposed to respond to them. I can't imagine doing any of the things they do. And I said, well, I'm not, I don't want you to do anything of the things that they do. But I said, to read about them and to understand them is different from condoning their behavior. And for me, that's the big difference, mm-hmm. that that in a training environment, I may have a, a case study, or I may have some particular scenario that There is a, there's a rule or a regulation or a law and I, and I need you to know as a, as someone who's being trained what is acceptable behavior and what isn't. But in a literature classroom, when I'm teaching, when I'm educating, my hope is that they see the full range of human behavior and they will see the full range of human behavior. Some of it admirable, some of it reprehensible and everywhere in between. And that's what literature offers them. And I'm asking them to read it without necessarily judging at every turn but seeking instead to understand what motivates people to behave the way they do.
0: Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's incredible to hear because the distinction, if I had to put it in shorthand, I'd say education is preparing our officers to deal with uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity and be critical thinkers in that environment. And training is really an indoctrination. It's helping someone to answer a, a particular question in a particular right way or doing something in a repeatedly so that you become good at it and education is critical to really fighting and winning in a world where conflict is not binary it's not easy to figure out it's it's not black and white which gets a little bit into into the conversation on your on your most recent book okay so let's talk about your most recent book again titled looking for the good war american amnesia and the violent pursuit of happiness first off congratulations and I'm extremely proud that you work here and you're publishing something of such high level. Can you give me a brief synopsis of the book?
1: Sure. I appreciate the kind words. The, the book really argues that our current understanding of World War II has been, instead of something that was true from the outset, a myth that evolved gradually and that really took off most energetically around the time of the 50th anniversary commemorations of the war. And so this was on the heels of the first Gulf War, which I think for many Americans, certainly for the first President Bush, who was, of course, president at the time, was a way of erasing the shame of Vietnam from the historical record. So he talked about it as as getting rid of the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. And I think that it was, as anyone—I mean, I watched that war during college on TV, and it was just this amazing, strange experience. And, of course, the the narrative was of one of invincible technological might and of of a swift war with a clear ending and a clear stopping point. And around that same time, of course, we had 50th anniversary commemorations, and I think America was feeling very different about itself than it had in the wake of Vietnam. And I think that looking back to World War II was a great sense of gave, gave us a great sense of strength. It was it's a very flattering myth. It is the myth that there are several components as I articulate them through the, the book. but in in some, it's the idea that everyone was united in the war effort, particularly of course after Pearl Harbor that everyone sacrificed on the home front, that Americans fight only when they must, and they fight always decently, and they are always fighting in the service of liberation. So this sense of ourselves as righteous liberators. And I think World War II was an aberration in so many ways. The unequivocal evil of the enemy, I think, was manifest to many. I think that The idea that fascist tyranny was an existential threat was crucial to an understanding of the the necessity of the war. And the book does not argue that the war was unnecessary at all. But we have a sort of selective memory. We didn't go to war to defeat fascism. We went to war because we were attacked. And despite the fact that President Roosevelt and his administration with the Lend-Lease Program and other other policies certainly knew what side it wanted to be on – we tend to downplay the great feeling of isolationism that followed World War I. And Americans, many Americans, viewed this as yet another European quarrel that we should not be dragged into. And then you have the even more problematic phenomenon of the America First Committee, headlined by no less than Charles Lindbergh, a great hero for Americans, whose sympathies were decidedly with the fascists. And so I think we tend to conflate the consequences of World War II, which was in fact, among, you know, the most prominent of which was to liberate Europe from fascist tyranny with the causes that animated our participation. And the the other crucial component to this is this question of unanimity. It is not in fact the case that many people changed their minds certainly or, or thought it politic to change their minds after Pearl Harbor. But... Only months after Pearl Harbor, the Roosevelt administration was really concerned that Americans didn't feel a sense of urgency anymore and that they needed to be reminded that this was a desperate fight that we needed to put our full effort into.
0: That's fascinating. A couple of follow-on questions from your comments there. When you say our understanding of World War II, are you talking about contemporary Americans' understanding, or it's more of a historic understanding?
1: I would say that I think it's still our current understanding. I think that there are various versions, but I think that the perhaps the, the most compelling version of the myth was that created by Stephen Ambrose in his histories and by Tom Brokaw in his books on the greatest generation. So the idea of the good war and the idea of the greatest generation are things that I think we accept. In ways that even let's say a, a decade before those commemorations in 1984 when the great journalist Suds Terkel published his book The Good War, he put good in quotations and he put a note on that because he said and he explained that the adjective good made it to the noun war as he wrote was sufficiently incongruous to warrant quotation marks. You hear um, the same
0: thing with law and war when you talk about the laws of war it's like those don't seem to go together.
1: Right. But I think now we generally accept that that was a good war. And, and so what does that mean? And, and I think the, the real, my, the, 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 my motivation for writing the book was that, was not to, to downplay the things that the success, the victory in that war, but instead to suggest that it gave us a really unrealistic expectation about what American military force might be able to accomplish
0: yeah yeah and you mentioned also the vietnam syndrome and and to some extent the negative feelings and maybe the lack of confidence that again t- stereotyping about the united states as a as a nation felt coming out of that war and 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 how that how that started to play itself out in lots of different ways and you you mentioned that the 50 year anniversary of the end of world war 2 and the you know, the 1991 invasion of, of Iraq helped reset Americans' perspectives on, on ourselves. Yet you were saying that you don't think even during World War II that was fully the, there was full confidence amongst the people about how we were, what we were doing and how we were doing things.
1: Yeah. And, and I don't, and the sense of the, the sort of sense of cause yeah. was much less prominent, I think, at the time. I mean, so so the the rhetoric around World War One was was very much about cause and it was a sort of messianic, Rhetoric about a kind of regeneration that one, you know, one could could fight and that it would have this sort of effect. But World War II, I think, it was a much more practical approach. And you know, there are all sorts of studies that were done at the time about the Four Freedoms, how many people could name them, those sorts of things. And and the sense that cause was was paramount in soldiers' minds was not necessarily the case. There's a, a study out of the out of the War College several years ago that suggested that the sense of of cause and the, the awareness of cause was much more important to volunteers of of this current generation than it was to soldiers of previous generations so many of whom of course were draftees mm-hmm.
0: it's hard for me not to connect the immediate re- reaction of the American people post 911 where you saw President Bush's number two approval ratings jump into the 90something percentile and this expectation we're going to do something with what you said following Pearl Harbor and then very quickly President Roosevelt is concerned about loss of interest or loss of focus. And similarly, you saw the United States people quickly fragment following 9-11. And so that's an interesting parallel I've never thought about or thought through. And maybe that's normal. I don't know. Is that your, your feeling that that's a normal response by by the American people when conflict breaks out?
1: Well, I think any in that case, uh, any response, I think, to a direct attack right. would feel that way. And then people Go about their lives. Of course, we were encouraged to go about our lives by the second president Bush, yeah, right? Yeah. We were encouraged to go shopping. Right. And so it was an interesting message in that I remember I was here when, when President Bush gave his, w- what was called the Axis of Evil speech, right? And, and the sense that, and that language, of course, directly referencing the Axis powers, right. people immediately calling 9-11 another Pearl Harbor. Which, in some ways, it was, and in some ways, of course, it was not at all. And so th- this idea that we we use this language, the language of fascism turned to Islamofascism, that the, the the vocabulary of World War II is still the vocabulary we use to explain our world. And I think our world has changed a tremendous amount. And so thinking about the ways in which wars are explained to us and the debt, that those who explain it to us owe to a World War II way of thinking. and and we know that that wars do not have the conclusive endings that perhaps I mean, who's who's to say they ever really did. But we looked in the past conflicts, of course, to a series of punctuation marks that turned out to be false endings.
0: Yeah. so one of the main points of your book is that the perspective we have of World War II today was not necessarily the way Americans, have always looked at it, and in, especially in the midst of it and in the years that immediately followed. When did what you call the myth of war really take hold? And, and what's its most important parts of that, that myth as you as you lay out?
1: So I alluded to, to Studs Terkel, whose yeah. 1984 book, and that was around the 40th anniversary of the, the conflict. So Studs Terkel was from Chicago, a celebrated radio journalist. And his oral histories were then that he had interviews with a wide variety, everyone from admirals to privates, from people who worked on the home front to those who served in combat. And he had wrote several books or turned these interviews into several books. And the one in particular called The Good War focuses on World War II. In that book, he managed to preserve, as he did in all of his books, a sort of full- range of attitudes toward the war and he made no attempt in that book to iron them all out into a single narrative they revealed the degree to which the mythology had not quite taken hold uh. and so i read in in their, in that book wildly divergent testimonies about sacrifice for example so you would have people interviewed and say we didn't sacrifice for many people who grew up in the depression the war brought the first job, the first real money they had ever seen. And so people would talk about, I had some money, right? I, yeah. I didn't really care what was going on. I had a job, right? Really proud." Pract- and I don't, I don't, I don't condemn them for that. Yeah. Nor does, nor does Turkle. That's the wonderful thing about the book. He preserves these many voices and doesn't try to make them all agree. You have people who, who served and were deeply patriotic and deeply invested in the cause. You had other people who were drafted and went where they were told and never, and freely admit that. And it was the worst experience of their lives. So you have the, the full gamut of emotional responses to the war in that book. But only 10 years later, really, by the time of these 50th anniversaries, that narrative really is smoothed over. And I think we have a far less complicated and more deeply nostalgic and sentimental view of the war. Which is embodied, of course, in this phrase, good war used without irony, not the way Turkle used it, ironically, but without irony. And then the concept of the greatest generation. I mean, my father was a member of this generation. Why would I not want to think it sure. was great? But I don't, I'm not really sure what that means or whether that's a provable claim or why we even need to make it. It was, you can honor someone's sacrifice without that kind of hyperbole. And I'm not sure that turning Everyone into a hero helps us actually understand the complexities of history.
0: What do you attribute the reason for? As you titled the American Amnesia, like why was this this narrative smoothed over and this mythology created?
1: So it it fit very nicely, I think, with a, really a Reagan era message about who America was. And again, it was a a post-Vietnam kind of resurrection of American power. The end of the Cold War contributed to that, I think. And I think it only intensified really in some ways during our latest conflicts, which seem in their own way even more confusing than Vietnam. And so going back to an earlier period, which has a comparative clarity... And then even exaggerating that clarity, I think gives us, it's a sort of a, it's a, it's maybe a, a very human reaction when we find ourselves in, you, you talked earlier about preparing cadets for, for volatility and uncertainty. That is our world. It's always been our world, but it, it takes new shapes, new guises. But to, to look for a period in which there was greater agreement about things or which we imagined there, there was gives us a sense of strength and, and comfort. Nations can't live without their myths, but at a certain point they can also do damage because they they don't let us think about the future clearly.
0: Yeah, so so back to that point to to myths and legends, they're they're important for lots of pragmatic reasons. I mean, there there is as you pointed out, you do need to be able to inspire people to fight. You do need to inspire people to to rise up and do certain things. You can't have you can't have soldiers be too conflicted. Sometimes they have to just act. But you also pointed out that these myths and legends can also be damaging. So does there need to be a balance how is there a balance What's how do you do that balance
1: i think there really there there does need to be a balance it's the same way that when you you first teach children about history you teach them about george washington and the cherry tree right you don't teach them about the the uh, his failures and successes in the revolution <laughs> you don't teach right. them about the constitutional convention you don't teach them a, about the fact that he you know about the newburgh mutiny which has its own Sure. Wonderful myth about it. So these are, these are ways to introduce us to, to the complexity of history of the, of the world of our country. But at a certain point, you have to move beyond those myths in order to grow and change. I mean, Lincoln, who is, I think, always, I, I think of him as the sort of the great teacher, but he, he has a speech in which he talks about what would have been the greatest generation of his own era, which was the revolutionary era, the Washingtons of the world. And he, everybody looks on them with reverence. They're dying off. It's the same way we talk about the greatest generation. And he says they were giants. But he said the, their great virtue, which was passion. They needed passion. They were, they were running a revolution, right? Is not the characteristic that will most help now. And he's talking about antebellum America, where he's seeing lynchings and riots and mob violence. And he says, we need something else. We need cool, sober reason. And as a result, he talks about the the fact that he he can look at this generation and admire it for what it did. But not necessarily feel nostalgic about it, not feel that we need a return to those earlier values. I mean, there's a, for me, there's a great irony, the country that's always been predicated on the future, about starting over, about reimagining. And Lincoln was one of our great reimaginers. Frederick Douglass was one of our great reimaginers. The, the great potential of the United States looking toward the future that we seem now to be looking backward all the time. You know, what, to, what is to that? Looking,
0: How do you, what do you, Think that's an indication of looking backwards.
1: I think that that it's tied in with this notion of trying to find a, a, a kind of greatness, a, a lost greatness. I mean, it's a strange, it's a strange place that we find ourselves. Ian, I think that after World War II, we were thrust onto a position on the world stage that we hadn't anticipated, and it gave us a certain kind of significance in the world as a as a leader in the world, it gave us a kind of mission, and I think that that has begun to dissipate in many ways. And so, I'm—I think it's about reinvention, and reinvention seems to me always about drawing on the strengths and traditions of the past, but moving forward. It's—it's a—it's the challenge we face at a military academy. Sure, right. We redraw dra- strength from our. I don't our know what traditions. you're talking about. There's no
0: tradition <laughs> no here, here Elizabeth. Here. There right. isn't. I've never seen one, but I guess you've seen a few. <laughs> I do think it is an interesting question this this balance because you're right there's real power on looking to the past as well as understanding the past so that you can learn from it but on the other hand going you know looking back too much in my opinion also indicates either fear of the future or lack of confidence or and so there's something about being able to and I I'm not going to say it quite as eloquently as you you know as paraphrasing Lincoln but basically Admiring without venerating, you know, past achievements and recognizing that maybe we do need to do something different to to be able to evolve and change. You suggest that in the book there are some costs of remembering World War II in in this you know this this I don't, I don't, you know this particular way, which might be too rosy, might be too even glamorous. What is the cost of remembering it through rose prim glasses or looking at it with such? you know, admiration versus seeing it for what it really was or, or as, you know, Mr. Turtle basically laid out that there was this variance of voices and opinions and views on, on the conflict both internally and externally.
1: So romanticizing the war in the way that we have leads us to focus on the European theater and not to think so much about the Pacific because it's harder to tell that story in the Pacific. The immediate calls to war after Pearl Harbor were calls for vengeance. It's hard to equate calls for vengeance with the figure of the righteous liberator that we have developed. And so we focus on the European theater to a greater extent. And I think that because we backdate our interest in defeating fascism, we really distort the war itself in some very powerful ways. One of of the stories that I tell is that of a group of people called the premature anti-fascists, the PAFs, as they were called. And these were Americans who fought in the Spanish Civil War. Some of them were communists. Not all of them were, but, of course, they were a lot. Russia was fighting on the same side. And when they came home, they ended up having FBI files opened on them. And when they tried to join... In World War II, they were often not allowed in combat positions because they were not trusted, and the OSS made good use of them. But these were people who actually were anti-fascist from the 30s on and recognized this danger, and so there was a great irony in being labeled a premature anti-fascist. But the very fact that we did that suggests something about our attitudes. Countries don't go to war for one reason and one reason alone— There's a complex network, as you well know, of motivations, both individually and nationally. But when we reduce it to this one story and a story of liberation, I think we've come to expect that any time we go to war, that is somehow going to happen. And it ties in with a a feeling of American exceptionalism, that when we use violence, it's always in the service of liberation and it will always achieve those ends. And so we seem, even though this is not in the war since, this has not worked out the same way that we seem to be to have an endless capacity for surprise when it doesn't work out that way. And I think that that's a real danger because it it costs the the lives of people you and I know quite well.
0: Your books full of of many different kinds of thinkers, writers and artists from war correspondents and novelists to painters and poets. Can you give me a few details on a few of some of your favorites that you describe in the book?
1: Sure. So one of the people I find most interesting is Ernie Pyle and he's probably the most famous of these journalists of the, the war journalists ends up being killed in the Pacific before the end of the war. And Pyle is known for celebrating the GI and the the the, the grunt. Yeah. And he does that and yet and he's sort of been I think he's sort of been co-opted by the the myth but when you read a lot of pile, you realize that it's a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> yeah, right. And that just reading the whole tapestry of, of those works and thinking about the ways in which he thought about war and thought about peace, the ways in which after he came home from London, which was being bombed at the time and came home to the United States, and it was a completely different world, and thinking about w- what does this mean? What What is America's role? What is its responsibility? In this new world. And I think that that feeling is shared by many war correspondents who came home. A.J. Liebling, Eric Severide, who had, who had been covering the war before the United States entered it. And they came home and the world was on fire and America seemed to sleep to them. And, you know, the lights were on. Yeah. Liebling comes home and he comes on a, on a ship. And he, that's when the news that, that America has joined the war comes. And, and he, he sort of, it's confusing to him because he's been at war, right? Mm-hmm. And and he, he looks and the, the lights in the port are all on and he it just isn't – it doesn't make any sense to him because that's not the world he's been living in. And so the the distance between the United States and the rest of the world is really made clear by so many of these journalists who served really bravely throughout, throughout the war.
0: So how has your comprehensive works that you have done helped in your interactions with cadets?
1: Well – Maybe I would sort of flip that around and say if I, if I hadn't had the interactions with cadets, I don't think I would have written the books that I ended right. up writing. It sure. goes full circle, but surely I wouldn't, I mentioned reading Grant in graduate school and, and I did. And he actually was in my, ended up being in my dissertation. I sort of found these military memoirs, but it wasn't the main point. It wasn't what I set out to write about. It just sort of seized my imagination. But I don't think that I would then have pursued the, the, the literature and the ideas that I now write about had I been teaching elsewhere. It's possible, but I doubt it. Yeah. Because, of course, you know, I, I don't see in my students today little Ulysses S. Grant, <laughs> right, running around. but I, But I do see a kind of continuity. I love, for example, to take them to the archives, and it's what I call the hidden history of West Point. We go on monument tours all the time. Sure. That's the public history. But what's the hidden history? Well, you go to the archives and you see... The 19th century registers, the library circulation records where you see people like Grant and Sherman and Lee and then a bunch of unknown people checking out books. And I tell them that was you, right? Centuries ago when you didn't have Netflix yeah. <laughs> and when you were, when it was a privilege to check out a recreational book and you could only do it on Saturdays. And you had to return it. And if you got in trouble and on the flyleaf of some of those circulation records, it says, you know, Cadet Reeves cannot check out books by order of the <laughs> superintendent because Cadet Reeves had run afoul of the regulations. And so, you know, thinking about that, thinking about what they read, about what they enjoyed. And so I, I became, I think, deeply interested in military issues, but because I saw in them not just purely an academic field but something that was real and vital and that had a distinct connection to the people I teach.
0: That secret history of West Point I haven't really thought about, but it's it's really there. And you point out the archives are a fascinating place to go and just look around. And, you know, you'll see even Whistler will have little, you know, whimsical drawings on his book, like he's sitting in class and bored, right? I mean, it's it, there is that connection. What do you think our responsibility as educators is to the next generation of army officers. How can we best prepare them for what some will say is the most difficult of human interactions, which is warfare?
1: So I think there are many pieces to that puzzle. And and I'll, I'll say as a, I won't answer as a sort of academy writ large, but I'll say from the educator's perspective that I think my responsibility, there are plenty of people around here who prepare them to go to war technically, tactically. I sometimes think of my, role as preparing them to come home. In the sense that they always have to, d- despite the fact that the uniform transforms, is meant to transform them, and that they learn a sort of new sense of self, and they learn how to be officers. We were just talking about this in, in class today, because one of the things that we ask the plebes to do is to memorize and perform a speech from Shakespeare. And I was talking about performance. And I said, I think we normally think of that as inauthentic, but you're all learning how to perform, right? The, the public performance of an army officer, you're different. I said, you're different with me. You don't talk to, to me the way you talk to each other in the barracks. And they sort of <laughs> looked at me, and of course they don't. And I said, you don't talk to me the way you talk to your parents at home either, right? That's a different different thing. So I said, you know, instead of thinking of performance as inauthentic, there can be authentic performance, but sometimes you have to perform, right? You have to to put on something. And so sort of thinking about that, Making sure that they are self aware, making sure that they never lose who they are when they got here, before they got here. So I have seen sometimes, sometimes this happens just after 47 months at West Point. Sometimes it happens after a 30 year career. But I sometimes see people who, who don't have much left after they take off the uniform because I think they've forgotten who they are without it. And I think that all of the, You talked earlier about the—this is sort of coming full circle, but you talked about the difference between training and education. I think education is about helping them figure out who who they are and who they will be even after their service, no matter how long that that is, that there is an authentic self there and that they need to to remember always who that is and and that they have an identity and resources and resilience that will help them because they're going to have to deal with a lot of difficult things in uniform and out.
0: How do you compile a broad and diverse reading list? you just figure out, like, I just want to read something and pick it up? Or how do you do it?
1: How much time do you have?
0: Ten seconds. Go.
1: So for the cadets or just in general? For yourself. Well, I guess I just sort of let my curiosity wander and take me in different places. I've certainly ranged far afield from a kind of conventional literary reading list. I sort of have... A broad range of interests. I think it it is. There are sort of important topics. Military history is one of them. I I love collaborating with the historians and trying to sort of figure out the ways in which literature and history might illuminate each other. I I often get that request from students. I'm going here or I'm going there, and sometimes the stakes are pretty high. You know, I'm I'm deploying over the last several years, and I need I need a list of your favorite books or the books that I need. In fact, a friend of mine who's a battalion commander just texted me and said, I'm, I'm asking people for, which is a great idea, but I'm asking people for, what, what is the, the most important book that I need to read? You need to, to say
0: Looking for the Good War. Well, there's <laughs> that, of course.
1: But I think I'm not sure that the most important book that for me is the most important book for you. So I'm often hesitant to, sure. to say, I mean, I'll, I'll say this book was really formative for me but it may hold no interest for you whatsoever. So, I, I, it's a, it's a very difficult question. I kind of I I do ask the cadets to do a version of this. Yeah. In 102 I asked them to compile something called Desert Island Books which is based on the BBC program Desert Island Discs. Good so, yeah. what books do they want to take with them? And you know, I tell them that, that if they answered it on on a Wednesday, they might have a different list on a Thursday, which is often for me the case. You know, one week yeah. I'll be celebrating one book, and then I'll find something else the next, and that'll be the most important book to me that week.
0: I would take numerous books on survival and the surviving a desert. (laughs) So this will be my final question. So there's been 15 deans of the academic board. Where do you rank me in those 15?
1: Oh, well, need you ask? No, I
0: don't think I do. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Thanks, Elizabeth. Thanks for taking the time. It has been really, really fun. I'd also uh, say, please be sure to tune in to the Inside West Point Ideas That Impact podcast next month. Remember, you can find this podcast as well as the other podcasts, journals, and books hosted or published by the West Point Press at westpointpress.com. And until next time.